Hello and welcome to the Disruptors Podcast. On the show today, we have former CEO and president of Aon, a Fortune 200 company, Steve McGill. Steve opens up and talks about his time at Aon. He reveals the deal he did with Manchester United, working with the Glazers and Ed Woodward. And at the time, that sponsorship deal was the biggest shirt sponsorship deal in football, worth way over six figures. It was unprecedented for the time and it opened the gate to more high-profile sponsorship deals. Since leaving Aon, he's gone on to work on many different projects, both working in the government and many other businesses, and he's now started his own firm. Steve is a really fascinating, interesting guy, and there's a hell of a lot of value you can take from this interview. So let's just get straight into it, but remember this, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Steve, is it true you were heavily involved with the sponsorship deal between Aon and Manchester United? Well, Rob, first of all, thank you for inviting me to uh, this podcast. And your research and your information is clearly um, accurate because it is true. I was involved in the sponsorship between Aon and Manchester United, and that was in 2009. And what was your involvement? Because I love how sport and business merge because I love sport and I love business. And it's quite unique to talk about those things on this kind of show. So what was your involvement? Can you talk us through the deal? Yeah, it, um, up until end of 2008, AIG were the shirt sponsors for, for Aon. And it was a very successful partnership. And you, you may recall with the financial crisis, AIG, which was was and still is actually now a very, very successful uh, insurance and financial services organization, went into quite significant financial difficulties. And being a high-profile American firm, multinational, sponsoring a British soccer team was probably, you know, not the right thing to do going forward. And so they needed to uh, move off the sponsorship. And that opened up uh, an opportunity for Manchester United to to then look at alternatives. And I I remember in uh, the time I was president of of Aon, uh, which in its own right at the time was um, one of the most successful global professional service firms in in the world. It employed 77,000 people in 120 countries. And it was a byproduct of 425 mergers and acquisitions. And Aon is Gaelic for um, unity and, you know, unifying the firm, oneness. And so um, what happened was... Uh, when I arrived in 2005, just after the CEO, Greg Case, to, to Aon, one of the key things we were looking to do with the leadership team at Aon was actually to bring what was a very fragmented um, organization with great talent, great content, great capability, and try and um, unify the firm and, and create a united firm that really emphasized teamwork. So you fast forward a few years and the opportunity arose for potentially something 
in a way quite innovative in our space, which was to use sport, and in this case, Manchester United, to really unify the firm and amplify the Aon brand all over the, the world. And, and so what happened is, first of all, AIG had to think about, you know, moving away from supporting Manchester United. Otherwise, they would have stayed with it, I'm convinced. Then um, Manchester United were sort of reaching out to high-profile firms all over the world looking for an alternative sponsor. And I remember um, in when I was in Chicago in sort of late 2000, sorry, early 2009, this big presentation arrived from Old Trafford from Manchester United. Very impressive, massive book at the time, impressive video, commentary from Salik Ferguson, incredible statistics about the profile of Manchester United around the world, the sort of recognition of the brand in China was, and Asia was about 90% of the population. The um, supporters of Manchester United numbered some extraordinary number, like nearly 700 million worldwide. And and so you, you were looking at the sort of presentation and getting quite intrigued. But I was... Um, the sort of senior Brit in um, a company where most of the other management were um, American, and um, and they their view of football was American football in the NFL, and they didn't actually have a full appreciation of what they called soccer. So what happened next was I then sent our head of marketing, who was also American, I said, look, just go and check this out. And this was a few months later and and went, and I said, go to Old Trafford, go to Manchester United, meet uh, the marketing team, um, meet the players and get, get a sense of whether there's a partnership that could be in, in the interests of AM. He flew over there and he called me up and said, I've never seen something as extraordinary as this that could really elevate the brand of Aon and at the same time unite the firm and do some of the things that, that we want to, uh, want to do in terms of reinforcing the Aon brand. And he said, but there's one problem. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, they are within a week of signing another sponsorship deal with another high-profile firm. So I then said, and this was now May of 2009, I then said, well, would the team, the marketing team, uh, would they come out and meet us in America, and in fact, meet us in New York, and we'll sit around the table and have a discussion and see what we can do. And so to cut a long story short, they, they flew out, and um, sat down with the CEO, Greg Case, myself, and cross-section of other leaders. We heard about um, the power of the Manchester United brand, and within a matter of days, we agreed to sign what was, at the time, the biggest shirt sponsorship in um, history of football. 
Wow. And so by, I think that um, Ed and the Manchester United team arrived on Tuesday. We'd shaken hands on the deal on Friday. We worked through very fast, fast. and we worked through the weekend, and it was announced on on the Monday. You know that was the the background, and I had the honour of um, formally signing um, the. So you were the man that signed the contract. Yeah, the Champions League final in Rome in. 2009, when Man United played Barcelona and lost. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Was that a nerve-wracking thing to do, to sign such a big contract? No, it it wasn't at all, because uh, the the board and, you know, the leadership of the firm were behind it. And and I, I genuinely, I think we all felt that it was going to be a real catalyst for driving much needed change in the organization. Mm. And it did. And there was a tagline that was created called the Aeon United. And it was amazing how powerful that Aeon United tagline still exists today. Right. And it was amazing how powerful it was in just bringing colleagues together and unifying the firm and driving financial performance. Mm. And what sort of numbers? You said it was the biggest shirt sponsorship ship deal at the time. What we're we talking here, how many millions or tens of millions over the time frame is it? Well, it, it was public information, so I'm, and, and it's now in the history books, but it, at the time it was, it was a four-year contract and it was $120 million over the four year, in total over four years, so $30 million a year. It demonstrated to my mind, the power of being able to look outside your own industry, go into something that's very adjacent, that's adjacent in an area like sport that interests everybody. And and it's how you can think about bringing these two elements together and creating something that is really powerful and impactful. Mm. You've got high-level corporate and entrepreneurial experience. What's the pressure like? Like, I imagine the more senior you get, you have to handle higher levels of pressure and stress. You look at Elon Musk. I mean, some people I don't, just don't think could handle the pressure. I mean, he makes one small mistake and people die in an explosion in his rockets and in his cars and he's juggling all these multi-billion dollar companies and he's just bought Twitter. And I think people don't really understand and respect the high level of pressure at very senior roles. Did you feel that pressure? Can you talk about that pressure? I, I put that pressure in, in context. You, you mentioned Elon, Elon Musk and, um, you know, he does something, he builds a rocket, you know, hopefully people don't die, but they could die. Um, but you bring that down to a more practical level. Uh, my twin sister used to be a, a nurse. And when I first started in this in this industry as a junior person. I started at the bottom distributing in those days telexes and opening the mail and serving the tea and the coffee. When I started getting, my career was started taking off, I felt immense pressure to the point that, you know, I wasn't sort of sleeping um, uh, properly at at nights. And, And after a period of time, I was sort of put it in context because I thought, you know what? The decisions I make 
decisions, if I make a mistake, something might go wrong and a client, you know, might not have adequate insurance or something. Well, if my sister, who's a nurse, makes a mistake, it could be fatal and it could she could kill somebody. And similarly with, with doctors. So I actually, from a relatively early stage of my career, put in context the stress that, um, you know, I thought I was under. And I have always tried to manage it in a, in, in a way where I've sort of said, put what you're, what you're doing in context. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a huge amount of pressure that you can be under at, at different points of time. But, but I think it's also important just to step back and realize that whilst you might feel you've got a high degree of pressure, there are other people out there where they've got real pressure and they make decisions that can change people's lives. And mm. I'm lucky enough not to have to be in that situation where if I make a mistake, something very serious could happen. Mm. So Donald Trump said he believes that success is directly linked to the amount of pressure and stress that you can handle. What do you think about that? I mean, the, the experience I had with, with him was, uh, was, was actually quite fascinating. And it was a business meeting and I was called to the Trump Tower in, in New York. And... Um, and what was interesting about the the meeting, and there were some parts of it that I thought, actually, this is really quite impressive, because at the time Donald Trump had been um, uh, had been doing this the Apprentice program, and and it had continued to enhance his his profile. And so when I went to Trump Tower, I was actually expecting uh, the meeting would be in either his office or a massive wood-panelled boardroom. Um, but it would be, you know, a very impressive, large either office or boardroom um, and quite intimidating. And when I went up to um, his, his office, it was quite a small, pokey office, and he was literally behind the desk and I'll never forget it. it was on the phone to Oprah Winfrey talking about um, his chef um, going to cook hamburgers on the Oprah Winfrey show and um, and I as, as he was on the phone uh, I was just looking around the office and it was literally just a working office you wouldn't have known it was um, you know Donald Trump's office. I was, I was quite impressed with that. He, mm. he then got off the phone, and this was where it was all obviously all, all about um, uh, about Trump. His his first comment to me after shaking my hand was, um, "Do you like my suit?" And <laughs> you know, which is a bit of a random, strange thing um, for you know a high profile, very famous businessman to say, obviously, before he became president. And I said, well, it looks pretty good. And he, he said, you know, it's a Trump-branded suit. It's this, that, and the other. And he's describing this suit. And um, 
and he's sort of showing me, he, 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 he then, I'll never forget, he shows me the inner lining of his suit and he opens it up and I was expecting, you know, the Trump logo. And it was actually Brioni. And he, <laughs> he, he then had to admit that he'd put the wrong suit on <laughs> that morning. And, um, uh, you know, and then rapidly change the subject. And then, yeah, it was, it was an interesting meeting uh, with an interesting person who has an interesting agenda. But I think often with with Trump, you know, it's all about what's in the single-mindedly, what's in the best interest of Donald Trump. And at that time, what's in the best interest of the Trump organization. Mm. 2017, you uh, leave Aon. Why did you leave? I'd been, it actually goes back to, I'd, I'd, Joined Aon in May of 2005. I'd been, at that time, nearly 30 years in the industry. After 10 years uh, uh, at Aon, so 2015, I was beginning to think, I was thinking about the sort of, if you like, the last chapter of my career. And I'd had such an incredible run at Aon that I actually wanted to think about, uh, and, and I'd had a great career in the insurance industry. I was actually thinking about, do I want to do something outside the industry? Um, do I want to do something in, um, in government, supporting governments? Um, do I want to give back and support, um, you know, uh, be supportive in, in terms of uh, being more involved in charitable work and giving. And and so I said after 10 years, when my sort of contract at the time was coming up for renewal, I sat down with the CEO, Greg Case, and we had a very good conversation. I just said, look, at some point over the next couple of years, I think I want to move on and um, and really think about what I want to do for the last chapter of my career. And in the interim, what I'll do is focus on bringing on the next generation of leaders at, at Aon. And I assured him I wasn't going to go to, you know, Aon's biggest competitors, which were, you know, Marsh, firm called Marshall McLennan or, or Willis. So that's basically the discussion we had. And then two years later, which was January 2017, the time was right to make that decision, both for myself and, and for Aon. And so at the end of January, um, you know, I uh, it was announced that, that I was retiring from Aon. And so I stepped back, uh, back then and, and looked at the landscape, had, had some time to sort of chill out. In fact, in 2016, I'd planned a family vacation, knowing that uh, this was coming up, actually. I'd planned a family vacation to go and see the migration of the wildebeest in Tanzania in you know, late May of 2017. So I knew I was going to have a, um, a, a bit of a break and an opportunity to, to chill. But when, I, when it was announced that, that, that I was... Um, leaving Aon, I then got a lot of inbound inquiries um, from within the industry, um, but also outside the industry. And then I started looking at 
other opportunities. Mm. So when you left, had you decided what you wanted to do? Deliberately or not? No. No. I, I wanted to just keep a completely open mind. Yeah. I'm getting a really good sense of respect and diplomacy speaking to you, Steve, and I'm a little bit more bold and bullish. Um, maybe that's my naivety. So I'm just going to make a couple of statements and then you can discuss sure. if you agree. I feel like if we're going to turn this economy around in this country, which has been run into the ground, we need people with proper, not just economics theory experience, but people who've run significant businesses. I believe the government is a, they've made it legal for themselves to trade insolvently because they can be knowingly trillions in debt and carry on trading with no proof to pay that back. Whereas as we know running companies, if we trade knowingly insolvently, we can be struck off as directors or, or worse. And it's, I've always banged my head against a brick wall. We've got some amazing British entrepreneurs who would absolutely, I'm sure, at the drop of a hat, go and support the government and advise the government. And I cannot work out why not. I asked Nigel Farage on the show why not. He thinks, well, they're not the Etonian brigade. And it really frustrates me. And it sounds like you actually been in government and it doesn't sound like they're an enterprise. What are your thoughts on my thoughts of that? Well, I, I think it probably politicians won't ever make really successful business people, in my opinion. I mean, there'll be exceptions and, and probably the same would apply with business people. They won't ever make great politicians. But I do think um, there is an opportunity, uh, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, where um, more effort could be made to bridge the divide between, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and business leaders who have got incredible insights, um, insights that have been created over, in, in many ca cases, decades, also with the expertise of, of politicians. And I, and I think, you know, if probably if you were talking to the politicians, they'd say, well, actually, there's lots of forums where business people come together with politicians to, um, you know, to, to look at what's best for the country and so on. But my view is, um, I, I can't say with, with absolute clarity on all of this, but my instinct is often it's too superficial, you know, and you can have meetings and, and you can sit around tables and you can have nice sessions, but you don't actually take it down to a level where you can say, okay, let's actually look at what we really need to do, what the end game is, how we can get there and what decisions we need to take collectively to get to the best possible outcome for, you know, the country. Mm. And, and I'm sure um, often, you know, I think government gets a lot of external advice from business. They have consultants, um, you know, the big consultancy firms pouring over government departments and giving insights and, and, and advice. But that's not the same as getting, you know, hard charging business leaders mm. who've, or entrepreneurs who've really learned the hard way getting that tangible experience 
partnering up with government. And, and I, for one, would would um, absolutely, you know, be supportive and putting my time and energy into not only um, the business that I'm very proud of leading now, but, you know, finding ways to, um, you know, get this country um, into, you know, a much better better place because there's a lot of challenges, a lot of things that need to be... Uh, to be addressed, and um, and it needs a massive team effort. Mm. So talk about the economy in a bit. So you set up your own business. You became an entrepreneur. So how have you find the differences between being very senior in the corporate world versus being a lean startup entrepreneur? Well, I mean, it's it's chalk and cheese. You know, it's it's you you start as an entrepreneur as you would appreciate you know with a blank sheet of paper you have a vision you need to think about um, what a business plan looks like you need to decide how much risk you are prepared to take you need to recognize that as an entrepreneur it's 24 7 and it's not sort of nine to five now if you're successful in big companies it's more than nine to five, obviously. Um, but there's a lot of personal risk associated with being an entrepreneur. And um, the risk in, you know, big companies, even for senior people, there's a different risk and reward dynamic. And, um, you know, being an entrepreneur is both, in a way, really exciting and can be really terrifying. And if you don't have that mix of emotions, I'm, I'm not sure it will make you um, a successful entrepreneur. You've got to always be thinking about the positives and the upside, but you've also got to be thinking about the downside and the, and the risks in, involved in starting a new business and making it successful. Mm. Here's an interesting paradox we've got. You are regarded as one of the game changers in risk management and then you become an entrepreneur and you have to almost see risk from the other side. So can you give us some tips on managing risk as someone who is in an industry for 30 years that is about risk management? I, I would say, first of all, um, I wouldn't bet everything I had on a single... Well, no risk manager would. would commitment. Mm. So so you, you spread your your risk. So that's point number one. Point number two, to my mind, um, money to, to, to me is, is, is a measure, but it's a secondary consideration. And when I look at my career and the success that I've been fortunate enough to enjoy, the financial rewards enable you to not only do things to support family and friends, but you can do a lot to give back. And and to me, that is a real driving force uh, now for me. It's, it's in building this business, in taking the risk and getting the rewards, it enables uh, myself and my wife, Liz, to think about how we can actually help others. And so, our, our commitment to giving back just goes up exponentially the more successful 
Magellan Partners becomes. Mm. And if you look on my on on the on the website, you'll see you know one of the key reasons that I set up this this business. Aside from wanting to build a British business at scale at the time of Brexit with strong transatlantic links, was actually to reinforce the ability to give back. Mm. And why is it so important to give back? Because I started from very humble beginnings, and I'm lucky enough to ha have had a career that has been, you know, financially successful. And I think, you know, when I was, um, and I, I just feel there's lots of people who um, who actually need support that won't that obviously get it um, from from the government and whether it's charities or whether it's um, individuals whether it's um, children with you know challenges or, or adults it, it doesn't matter and and to my mind one of the disappointments I find in this country is that people who have got wealth in this country share a very small proportion of that wealth or give away a very small proportion of that that wealth in uh, giving back and in charities disproportionately less than in the states now I know in the states are different tax benefits but there was some extraordinary statistic I read that said that if you look at the tax returns of high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals, the average amount they give to charities is a thousand pounds. Wow. And that I think in is the a, UK. In the UK. And that I think is that, that is outrageous. Me. I mean, I know there are some high profile billionaires in America who are either endeavouring to give all their wealth away or have given away tens or hundreds of billions. Yeah. I think Bill Bartman, Chuck Feeney, obviously Warren Buffett to Bill Gates. I know a lot of people have opinions about Bill Gates, but he's a big philanthropist. I'm shocked that it's not the same in the UK. Is it because we're taxed so much? I think that's one of the... Because you feel a bit... I, mm. I, well, I think one of the explanations is that you know, we're more heavily taxed in the, in the UK versus, say, the US. And um, you don't get the same tax benefits in the UK versus the, the US. The tax benefits, um, that is factually correct. But that is no excuse for if you're lucky enough to be able to generate an amount of wealth which is way beyond what you need to live a really nice lifestyle. As far as I'm concerned, it's it's good to be able to do things and give back. It makes my wife and I feel really good. And we, and we don't do it in public, it's all very low key. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a big motivation for why I get up and build a business and work flat out in trying to make this firm that we'll get on to eventually. <laughs> um, well, a, I hope you've a, got a great time. Success. We like to relax and have long discussions. So I would like to talk about this because I think we've got a chance to put a, a positive message out there, Steve, because um, I rarely talk about my philanthropic work because I don't want people to feel like I'm doing it as a marketing campaign. I just want to do mm. it because I want to do it. 
but I do have a foundation. I set it up five years ago in the launch of my book and I give away all the profits to the book and various things and I do various things and I fuel startups for underprivileged people and I spend a lot of time doing one-to-one consults on Christmas Day and my birthday and New Year's Day and things like that. It just feels good. And there's way more things you can do other than just chucking millions of pounds down. It can be time, consultancy and experience you can give back. So why do we not doing it enough Britain and how can we encourage British entrepreneurs to do it more? Well, I, I, I think there's... Are a bit grumpy? <laughs> I, I think it's, it's a really hard question to, to answer. And, and I think among... For years, people have been asking me where I buy my watches. Many of you may know I'm a watch collector, I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk, and he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Meal. I trust him, I've used him for many years, and recently we've done a partnership. Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07496-878153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. the population that really should think a bit differently. I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in thinking, and I just don't know how you go about that. I think possibly if um, if you could create better tax incentives mm. to, to do it, that might be a um, you know a bit of a, a, a catalyst. But it needs to it needs to come from your heart, and uh, you know one of the one of the greatest, you know, we talked earlier about Manchester United, and one of the um, one of the things that I'm most proud about was in at Manchester United back in 0910. Um, my wife and I had the um, privilege of meeting Sir Bobby Charlton, and um, and we were talking to. I remember it was um, just before Liverpool game. Um, we met him at Old Trafford in one of the conference rooms with his wife, Norma. And he always had this ambition to do something um, to support victims of landmines around the the, the world. And, and actually, it was more, um, is there something we could do to improve the detection of landmines around the world using you know some of the expertise in the uk um and the ex- the sort of combining sort of technology with um some of the brightest minds in in the uk and could we actually get better mine detecting equipment because some of the detecting equipment used um uh for um commercial per used around the world 
to detect landmines actually goes back to the landmine detections that was effectively invented in early in the Second World War by a Polish uh, officer um, who invented mine detecting equipment. He created this machine because the British were having such a hard time in fighting the Germans in the desert in the Second World War. Mm. And he actually was a Polish officer that didn't patent it. He gifted the innovation to the British Army in, in the Second World War. The mine detecting equipment hadn't sort of improved since then. And so to cut a long story short, Sir Bobby, because he'd been going around the world and going to places like Cambodia as part of, um, you know, part of uh, charitable work, particularly related to sport and, and football. And he'd see these young kids, you know, one who'd have um, his or her, you know, limb blown off. And it was like, how can we sort of stop this? And um, he had been, this had been nagging him for years and years and years. And we literally said um, to Sir Bobby, well, you know, why don't we just get on and do it? Why don't we form a charity and um, raise money and then start, um, build a plan and then see where it goes? And we literally did that. So shortly, within six months of meeting Sir Bobby, um, we set up a charity um, with, um, uh, it was called Find a Better Way. We said, now that we've set it up, in six months' time, we'll have raised a million pounds for this charity. My wife and I particularly worked hard and we raised a million and 50,000 pounds. Wow. And we set up a dinner six months down the line, which was actually hosted at Lloyd's of London in the in the city, and um, and we got the charity going. And today, it's called the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation. It's got a broad remit, which includes um, uh, you know not just innovation and technology, but also um, education. Um, you know in all over the world around what you need to, how you can, how you need to understand the risks of improvised explosive devices and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And it's, uh, it's been incredibly successful. And, you know, I was um, very privileged in um, 2014 uh, to be honoured uh, by our late Queen Elizabeth um, at Buckingham Palace with um, a CBE for humanitarian work, and which was related to launching that charity and 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 also services to business. Mm. And how does that make you feel? Incredibly proud. Mm. Um, you know, still proud eight eight years on, mm. and um, and I never thought from my humble beginnings, I, <laughs> I never thought I'd ever set foot in. Um, in Buckingham Palace, and I certainly never thought I'd ever get an honour, and I never thought I'd get honoured by by Queen Elizabeth. Hmm. Steve, five years as an entrepreneur in this um, newish company, 
Did you fully fund yourself? Did you raise money? Are you the sole shareholder? Are you, are you building a board? And do you want to sort of take us on this journey of your, as you said, the later stage of your career? Well, the uh, the, the whole view, just to put it in 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 context, the the business I'm involved in is um, is specialist insurance and what's called reinsurance broking, and it's it's a you you've got when you think of you might rob think of insurance as i need to insure my car or my house and you know you'll get my a, watches are the well, hardest ones your watch, sure. they're, they're, yeah. they're quite hard but you know you'll get a a quote from you know a firm like an aviva or mm. an rsa or um a hiscox or a direct line and yeah. um and you know you, you get the premium and you by the insurance, so, mm. so that's one end of the spectrum. The, where we're operating is at the a very sophisticated end, which is specialist insurance and reinsurance broking, where we're providing insight and advice to some of the biggest organisations in the world around risk management and how to manage and deal with these risks. And that can often involve, we're dealing with companies, some of whom have got over $100 billion of assets around the world. Wow. And we're providing risk management and insurance solutions to those type of organizations. And what that means is um, to actually find a solution, you often need to, to get not just a single insurance company to you can't do that to ensure your needs you actually need to harness the world's capacity and often you're almost it's like a jigsaw you're you're going to up to 200 different insurers and they're all taking pieces of a massive risk management program program so it's it, it's a very bespoke, very skilled part of the the market um, that that is also a big market opportunity. And Marsh has got eighty five thousand employees. Willis now they do, sorry Willis have got forty thousand. Aon they've divested of some of their business. They've got about fifty thousand to, today. And the skill set is around largely the quality of the talent that, that you have. So when I was sort of looking at um, the business opportunity, I was thinking, you know what, if you start with a blank sheet of paper and you think about attracting some of the finest talent in the industry, you can actually build a business and serve some of the biggest corporations in the world. And if that thesis is correct, the opportunity we could have as a firm to actually take market share off three firms that have got an 80% market share could be enormous. In looking at the opportunity, it wasn't just a matter of when you think about the capital needed, 
we needed a financial sponsor that would partner with me and I would put um, a material amount of money into, into the firm and other colleagues who would also do the same thing. And we needed somebody who would buy into the, um, the vision we had and the market opportunity. And that firm was a firm called Warburg, Warburg Pincus. They're one of the most successful financial sponsors in the world. They're the oldest private equity firm in, in the world. They're US based in New York, but with a, a global reach. And um, they agreed to commit up to $250 million of capital. We put in um, as initial management additional capital, and that was the um, the, the sort of foundations um, on which the we were, we were going to set off on this, what we call in the firm, interesting and exciting adventure. <laughs> and we, um, I did two years of research, analysis, planning, talking to potential clients, talking to regulators, talking to financial sponsors. And then we... Um, really, it all came together in May 2019, and we soft launched when we when we could accept business from clients, which was October 2019, and our first full year of trading was 2020. And you know, I, I sort of reflect on it now, and I and I think when I think of where we are today and the progress we as a team have made, which is extraordinary. When I go back to 2019 and I sort of, if I knew what the landscape looked like and if Warburgs did, would we have put our chips down and said, okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna invest. The answer would be, you'd look at it and say, we must be mad. You know, if, <laughs> if you knew that March, 2020, and bear in mind, we're building a global business and travel is incredibly important and being in front of major corporations is, is important. We're building a global business and the first thing that's gonna happen is in 2020 in March, you're gonna go into lockdown. You're not gonna be able to, uh, to travel and there's a global pandemic, the likes of which hasn't been seen since the Spanish flu of the, um, of, you know, 1917 and by the way and that's not going to last um just for a few months that's going to go through 2020 and it's going to go through 2021 and then just as you think you're coming out of that let's throw in the mix you know russia invading the ukraine and then you've got you know the challenges of interest rates energy prices, inflation. And then as you're sort of thinking about getting through 2022, you know, question marks, is the world going to go through a global recession in 2023? Well, if you were looking at that sort of picture, as we're sort of beginning to think about, you know, starting a business with our first full year in 2020, you'd, you'd say, well, you know, how the hell are we going to be able to navigate through all of this? What is remarkable is 
you know, where we are today, we have built a business that currently employs 474 people that has offices in London, New York, Dublin, Bermuda, Sydney, and soon to be um, Zurich. Our revenues have gone through $150 million uh, of annual run rate revenues. In our third year, we have, um, when you look at where we are, we've managed to build a team of specialists who've been able to um, really do what we thought was possible, which was work together with deep expertise and um, and actually compete with the three biggest firms in the world and win. And the, the, the analogy or the project name when we were building the firm was called Project Thunderbolt. And Project Thunderbolt was the name I gave our project before we decided on whatever the company name was going to be. Project Thunderbolt was um, the project name for the most successful, arguably, um, special forces raid in history, which was the Israeli special forces on the 4th of July, 1976, rescuing hostages from Entebbe airport in Uganda um, in a mission that was extraordinary, innovative, required amazing teamwork, serious courage, and they sure as hell delivered an impact and delivered results. And, and you know, I think, you know, I, I look at what we've achieved as a, as a team and the journey we're now just about to go on for the next three years. And, and I'm incredibly proud of everybody that's come into the firm. And also in answer to your question about capital, Every single, the 474 colleagues, every single one of them, directly or indirectly, has an equity interest in the success of McGillan Partners. What a journey. <laughs> There's a couple of things that have popped up. Interestingly, earlier you said about when you went to Aon, the challenge is also the opportunity. And it sounds here like the challenge of lockdown maybe also was the opportunity for you. I think true entrepreneurs, they make the greatest challenge, the greatest business opportunity. What would you say about that? I think there's, I think there's some truth in that. We had to rapidly pivot and, and really think about um, how we could turn an unbelievably challenging situation into a positive for, for, for the firm. And you know, this is a confidence business that we're in. And at the time, I think we went into lockdown. And by that stage, we'd recruited 160 colleagues, many of whom had come from the big three firms who've, you know, who've been around for decades and a very stable and secure environments. And um, because they're very talented people, 
many of them were getting calls from their previous employers to say, you know, it's a great shame that, you know, the pandemics occurred and, you know, McGill and Partners was a great concept, but, you know what, you can have your job back, you know, if, if, if you want to, you know, come back and join us. Not one individual actually wavered at that time communication and leadership among by not just me but our senior team was really important so we were over communicating um and talking about how we're gonna manage things and and how we're gonna you know build the business and i also assured everybody that every individual that has gone into lockdown with us the 160 they would be coming out as a team and we were not going to furlough any staff doesn't matter who they who they were and you know one of the when i look back on the last three years the proudest moment for me was navigating through that 2020 period having 160 people going into lockdown in march 2020 and you know a year later <clears throat> we had 251 people in the firm. So we continued to recruit and we continued to, and we won client after client after client. We had, you know, we used, as you were alluding to, you know, we thought differently, we leveraged technology and we got on the on the front foot and, um, and we won an extraordinary amount of, of, of business and it set the foundations for, um, for the success of the firm. So, yes, it was, you know, the pandemic was both a massive challenge but also a massive opportunity. So on the show, Disruptors, we like to change it up. We like to have some deep conversations like we are, and I've still got a couple of questions which I'll save to the end on that. But we like to do some more light-hearted or some quick-fire type questions. So I've got some some more lighthearted and some more quick fire questions for you. Now, this one is sort of lighthearted, but not. And there are some very influential people that have a theory that to be a billionaire or a CEO of a big company, you have to have psychopathic or narcissistic qualities. Do you agree? I don't. I think to in certainly in, in the, the business that, that I'm involved in, I think you've got to, you've got to have leadership qualities um, that are, in, that's important. But I also think you cannot succeed without surrounding yourself with incredible talent and incredible talent that, that and not only incredible talent, but diverse talent who are prepared to actually um, give you different views and different perspectives so that you can make an informed decision. As CEO of, of the business, ultimately, I need to make the ultimate um, decisions, you know, with the support of the leadership team and the board. Um, but I don't think you can succeed without surrounding yourself with a phenomenally successful team who help make you better because they're exceptional talent. They can give you different views and, and perspectives. And, you know, when you 
learn from all of that experience. It makes you both a better leader, and I think it guides the firm uh, into the right place. And of the skills or talents that you would acknowledge in yourself that you have, how high up does building a talented team come? Right at the top. So that would be your main skill. The I do a webinar every single month to um, to all our uh, colleagues, and every single webinar, I make the point that the assets of the firm are the talent in it, and I truly believe that we would not be the success that we are without high caliber, high quality talent that are prepared to come together and work as a single team. Something that I've always found difficult about running a business, we have 144 staff currently, is letting people go, redundancy or um, you know worse. I know Richard Branson has said he doesn't fire people, he lets his team do it. Have you gone through the process of having to fire people? How do you feel about it? Because I feel like it is an important part of talent acquisition is also letting go of people who maybe shouldn't be there. Yeah, inevitably, you know, as you're building a, a firm, you have, um, hopefully you get most of the talent decisions right and, and some of them you can, you can never, never get right. And so you've got you've to make, um, you know, appropriate, tough decisions. But I think it's, it's always a shame to my mind if somebody who is having to leave the firm does not have an appreciation that it, it comes as a shock to them as opposed to they've been given a lot of coaching and guidance and you know if they haven't actually managed to um, learn from the experiences and they just can't perform to the standard we want then you know you you've you've got to make the the appropriate decisions the thing i would say though is we're unusual in our industry because most businesses are built through mergers and acquisitions, you know, where one company is buying another company, and it's it's really prevalent in in our in industry. What we've done is we've done talent acquisition exclusively, so we haven't bought companies, and so we re work really hard to try and make sure that an individual is going to fit the culture of the firm. And so on average, most people who are looking to join McGillan Partners go through at least five different interviews wow. before they're accepted into, into the firm. Yeah. Wow. And we hope that by having a cross-section and again a diverse section of colleagues interviewing these mm. individuals yeah we hope we'll be getting the decisions more right than wrong and that's certainly proven to be the case on, on the journey we've had mm. i really want to talk to you about talent acquisition i'll i'll push it down a bit i, I just made a note i had this theory you sparked you sent my brain going crazy when we first met you probably won't remember why but I'm going to come to it and ask you the question. But something that I've started to do a bit randomly is let candidates interview me 
instead of me interviewing them for parts of the interview. I remember interviewing someone, I remember thinking, well, number one, the recruitment fee on him is eye-watering. He's got to be good. I'm not really sure. I'll be honest, I was, bit, I was a little bit bored in the interview and I just thought, you interview me. What, what do you want to ask me that would make you want to work here? Because I have this fundamental belief that if people enjoy the job they're in, you've won at least half the battle. Mm. And so we spend all of our time interviewing them as if they're a right fit for us. But if we're a right fit for them, we've kind of half won the game anyway. So I've been thinking about this more and more. Should I conduct conduct my interviews where half the interview, I interview them, but half the interview, they interview me? What do you think about that? Well, I I think it's always good in everything one does to um, hear both sides of the, the story. And so allowing um, somebody who might be a potential employee to answer questions from the employer and vice versa is is healthy I, I also I also find it's incredibly helpful to start off in an interview process by saying to them okay what do you know about McGillan partners because um, and and then you know you you can actually ask answer questions um, for them, but that's a that's an immediate within sixty seconds. You can actually get a view as to whether they've bothered to do any research on the firm, whether they've done superficial research, or whether they've got a really good understanding. And mm. and I think um, it's amazing how many people get called out by something as basic as, as that. Mm. But I, back to your point, I, th- I think a two-way dialogue where you can really do due diligence on the individual and the individual can do due diligence mm. on the company is, again, helping you, helping you get, hopefully, to an outcome that's a win for both sides. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to test that some more. I just fundamentally think that sometimes the power shift is in the favour of the employer because someone is trying to get a job. I also think people will often not tell the truth if they really need the job because they really need the job. Whereas if you give them the chance to interview you, because I almost at times try and talk them out of it as a test. Yeah. And actually what you say about because I always think it's quite a simple question to say, what do you know about the company? But it's actually a test if they really want to work there. Because if they haven't done any research, they don't really want to work there. Yeah, correct. So I'm going to come back to talent acquisition. I've got a selfish question for you on that. Um, Because we haven't got the big three, hundreds of billions of companies that we can borrow talent from in in our industry because we are the biggest one. Um, So I need some tips on that. Right, we do these rounds on the show where we sort of look for 30-second answers, get the speed and the energy going. So if you want to expand on one or more, that's fine. And like I said, some of them are fun. So what do you think about Bitcoin? I don't have a view on Bitcoin. I don't know enough um, about it. And so for that reason, I am cautious. Do you think there's a recession or crash coming? And if you do, when and maybe by how much? I think there's a potential of a recession coming in the first half of, of, of this year. Um, I don't think it's going to be maybe as extreme as some people might 
might think so. I don't think it's going to go into a depression. I'm not sure it's going to be global. And being the optimist in me, I think that the uh, environment, I think inflation uh, may start coming down um, towards the second half of, of this year. I think the American economy will really um, continue to um, be quite successful, um, is, is my prognosis. And I think also, uh, but, but the other thing you've got to watch is the extremities of China going from uh, an environment where um, no one could really move outside the country and you know there was so much control because of covid now they've opened opened it up and you know covid is going through china um pretty dramatically right now and the the one of the questions is is that gonna really impact on some of the sort of supply chain issues if it, if it does it could be a different picture but but i see the first half of this year being more challenging than than the than the second half, and obviously, if if there was um, a negotiated settlement between Ukraine and Russia, that would be in the very helpful category. Are you investing in anything particularly right now? I think something at this time might be a good investment. I mean, I always um, believe that the best investment to make is in myself and what I'm doing. So either the company I'm with or the company I was in or um, now McGillan Partners. And beyond that, um, the best investment to me is investing in supporting um, uh, people who, are, who need support. And to me, you can't quantify what that means in return, but it's very positive. Do you think there's enough financial education taught in the school system? No. Do you want me to expand? Yes, please. On that? <laughs> Sorry, that was the pause <laughs> to let you finish. <laughs> no, I, I, I think um, I think it would be uh, very helpful to have when when you leave school and go into the the bigger world to get a better understanding of um, you know just broadly finances and what you need to um, yeah what you need to think about um, in terms of your own personal uh, balance sheet you know I uh, back to we talked earlier about you know football now it's beginning to change but it was amazing the proportion of footballers that would f finish so they'd obviously leave school they'd play football, they'd be successful, they'd then retire. But the proportion of footballers that then went bankrupt was, you know, 60, 70%, some extraordinary number. And and now they're getting better educated, you know, on finances. But I, I, I think coming out of the school system with a better understanding, I think just sets you up um, uh, better for, you know, guiding you and, and helping you make more informed decisions on what is a really important topic. Mm. So I guess that begs the question, why is there not better financial education in schools? Ask the school system, not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who controls the money in the world? 
That's a really interesting question. I mean, um, I would, I would say, you know, governments obviously have a huge influence over the the money supply, and um, you know, the proportion of wealth that is is in the ultra high net worth category is disproportionate. So, you might need to sort of look at those two constituents. Yeah, I always felt that maybe the central banks, like you said, control the money supply and someone who managed 160 billion worth of funds said he thought that, you know, the big funds like Vanguard and BlackRock, he thought they controlled a lot of the money. And I guess that has a lot of the high net net worths behind it. Well, Vanguard has actually got a certainly high net worth behind it because you know Warren Buffett talks publicly about Vanguard as you know if he was putting all his funds in um, in a sort of mutual it would be a firm like Vanguard but Vanguard also deals with a large um, cross-section of the population and very successfully Mm. so uh, yes you're right actually if you extend it to if you think about governments and then you think about business I think um, some of the asset management companies like Vanguard, like BlackRock, um, some of the private equity companies like Blackstones, um, you know, when you look at that, sovereign wealth funds, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's the, um, the sovereign wealth funds out of the Middle East or Norway, which is, is huge. I mean, these are, you know, multi multi billion hundred billion dollar funds or in some cases trillions mm. so they all have um you know a major influence but some of these big funds also um are uh investing money on behalf of you know pensioners or individuals mm. so as the man who actually signed the piece of paper the contract um, between Aon and Manchester United. Got a couple of Manchester United related questions. So what's Ronaldo's legacy for his second term at Man U and was he worth 500 grand a week and how do you feel the end of his career went? Well, I, I, I don't want you to think that whilst I follow Manchester United, I don't passionately support them. I, I like the, the team, mm. um, but I like watching great uh, football teams like I'm very interested in watching what Arsenal are doing this season mm. now they're um, top of the league so so I don't have a strong view on Ronaldo and on you know his pay although I do feel the numbers for these uh, footballers is just um, you know going going into the let's call it extreme category why do you think they're paid so much? Um, it's a very good question. I think um, it's basically probably a reflection of the view somebody has or a club has of the value of that individual to a club and what they can actually do to make the team a great success, mm. but it you you look at the you look at the finances in 
in football generally, you know, it's a, it's a pretty challenged business. Um, it's an emotional investment mm. more than necessarily a rational investment. Mm. So I'm fascinated to compare, say, the Glazers who own Man U with, say, Fenway Sports who own Liverpool. I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm just putting my bias out there. <laughs> but Fenway Sports, the mirrorball method, famously not spending hundreds of millions, but doing a lot more data and analysis and being a, a bit more wily maybe in the acquisition of players. Why are the Glazers hated so much by Man United? Did you ever meet the Glazers? Do you understand that dynamic? Well, I said earlier in the interview that, you know, as someone has described, um, you know, some of the sort of football sort of mindset as tribal. And, and I think that is, that is the case. And I, yes, I did meet the, the, the Glazers and I found them perfectly reasonable, decent people whose interests in seeing Manchester United be a success were, was very genuine. Um, I think you get polarising views when, you know, if Manchester United is successful, the, the noise can die down. If it's unsuccessful, the noise goes up. Um, you know, Liverpool... Um, have had an incredible run, you know, and they're, you know, in a slightly more challenging position right now, but they're an incredible team. Um, Arsenal, you look at, you look at Arsenal, um, they went through, obviously they, they had that period sort of early in the 2000s when it was the Invincibles and, and when, um, they could do well. They didn't even, I think, in an entire season, they remarkably didn't lose a, a mm. game. But then they went through that period of time where they weren't actually achieving as much as they would like. And Arsene Wenger went from you know an absolute hero to a bit of a villain, and you know, and you get polarizing views. Um, even Arteta with Arsenal has gone through a period of, of time where the views are very polarised. I, th I think it's not only is it the same with the sort of manager, but it's a, it, it's, it's the same with uh, the owners. You know, mm. the, the fans can be um, very clear either on the positive or the negative um, in terms of, you know, their, their views and thinking. By the way, it doesn't mean it's correct. Mm. And and I think in Arsenal's case, you see what you know what they're building right now, and it it looks to be quite encouraging and quite positive. And sometimes it's not a matter of throwing money at uh, you know at players. I mean, you you can never underestimate the power of teamwork, and and actually, you know, bringing on just like in business, bringing on younger talent um, that might be from uh, you know. In, in the case of Arsenal or Manchester United, you know, getting younger talent coming through their training mm. schools. Well, Ferguson was always really good, wasn't he, at bringing through the yeah. young talent? And I think Manchester City have done that well. Liverpool have done that well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, it's... It, it, it's Football is such an emotional mm. sport. It, 
And we all like Brings a villain the best to blame. And worst out yeah, we people. all like a villain to blame, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. And I, I would say, the, the, the fine thing I'd say, you know, you reference Liverpool and the ownership and you reference um, the Glazers. And, you know, they obviously, on both sides, they've got, um, they own, you know, American football mm. clubs in, in the States, for example. You don't get the same polarisation and noise no. in the, the US. The, the owners are pretty much always supported you know right. it's it, it's quite interesting that football you know football can be such a unifier but also such a divider of mm. opinion and is this then interesting to raise the culture difference between um the uk and america because most of the entrepreneurs that i've learned from to become an entrepreneur are american mm. Most of the stuff that's made me overall a positive person that I've learned from, because I wasn't always, it was quite critical and negative when I was younger, is from American, an American personal development. Is there a better culture in America to be an entrepreneur? Yes, I would definitely say... That upsets me, that does it? It does, yeah. and, and I, I regret saying it, but in my career... For most of my career, well, all of my career, other than part of my time at Aon, I was working based in London, traveling all over all over the world, and particularly traveling into America. From 2005 with Aon until 2012, I was based in the US, based in Chicago. And I thought, the view that I had from London sort of looking at the, the, the US would be pretty similar when I was in the US looking at London. And suddenly, over, over that six-year period, I, I had a really different outlook and perspective. And, and from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I just felt the US really admired and applauded and encouraged entrepreneurs. And I often feel in this country, unfortunately, entrepreneurs can be, you know, put down for whatever reason. Um, mm. You know, the firm that we formed, I would say there isn't a firm that's been formed like this at scale in 30 years in this industry. And the amount of pot shots we get from people, and we're very respectful of our competitors, it's just unbelievable. And I genuinely don't think you would see that same dynamic in in the in the US. I think there's an almost, in the US, it almost is, if you're an entrepreneur, and by the way, if you fail, it's, it's, it's not a negative. Mm. You know, you've tried, you didn't succeed, get up, do it again. Mm. Over here, for some reason, there's a cultural difference. And it's, it's a shame. Mm. Yeah, I decided, because I had a moment in my career where I thought, I want to go to America. And because I've I had then two young children who have grown up a bit, I thought, no, I'll put family first. And I decided to stay. And my kids will probably leave home within, one of them might leave home within the next six years. And I'm sort of thinking again, I'll be around about 50 then. Maybe I should go to America. Should I go to America? I, You know, 
I mean, I know you can't manage my life, so don't. But but you know, should it be something I should taste and really understand the difference? I, I'll give you a bit more context, Steve. One of my greatest fears is going bust. Yeah, I think it's good. I've never gone bust, and you know, when I've had challenges, I've always looked after people. Um, but I wonder if that's cultural, and I wonder if it, I wonder if that fear of not wanting to go bust holds me back from greater risk and greater growth. Because I know actually in America, if you've gone bust once, good. If you've gone bust twice, even better, we'll lend you more money. And I'm, I wonder if I'm holding myself back being in this culture. You'll only know that if you go and experience another culture like in America, and then you can compare and contrast the two experiences. My view, for me personally, it was, and, and for starting a business in London, it was one of the it was one of the best things that I could possibly have done. I didn't know it at the time was go and live in America for for six years. Land of opportunity. Everything's bigger, better, bolder. You know, I, I think if I hadn't experienced that, I might have still set up this business in in London. But I might have said, you know what, we're going to do fifty million dollars of revenue over the next three to five years. Whereas actually, the the experience that America gave me was actually be bold, be bigger, be more ambitious, and and so our goals are not fifty million. It's like four five hundred million of revenue in sort of you know five to seven years. And and people, when when we were sort of playing this back, and to people in London who were looking to join the firm. They thought we were completely nuts. How the hell are we going to be able to do that? You know, there've been firms, smaller firms, who took a hundred years to achieve a hundred million dollars of revenue in our space. We went through that in our second full year. Wow! Uh, whilst navigating through a global pandemic, I don't believe I'd have had that level of ambition if I hadn't actually had a proper taste. Uh, more than a proper taste, six years of mm. of really experiencing um, the US from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Mm. I'm sold, Harry. What about you? <laughs> we, we've been talking about, because this podcast now is, I mean, it's not my main business. I have other companies, but this podcast now has just turned seven, seven years old, which in podcast dog years is like 90. And we've talked two or three years about just, going over to America, getting a big Winnebago, setting up with all this stuff and just driving around America and going and interviewing and meeting really interesting people. Maybe it's this year. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you've definitely inspired me there, Steve. Thank you. Um, how do you sell anything to anyone? Well, uh, is this another 30-second <laughs> answer? It's your time, Steve, as long as you like. But yeah, it's designed to be that. Yeah, well, well, I think first of all, you need to you you need to understand what your value proposition is. Is it compelling? Is it distinctive? And um, is it easy for a another party or a potential client to understand? And you know that to me is is a really important ingredient. And then you need to be very compelling in going in front of a potential client and selling what you've got. And, and, you know, back to McGillan Partners, 
you know, we did two years research talking to potential clients about you know what they liked, what they didn't like, what they liked in the bigger brokers, what they didn't like, what was important to them, what wasn't. So we kind of shaped a value proposition that we thought would resonate with those clients. So mm. we did a little, lot of listening. We then designed a value proposition. We then put it in front of the clients. It was then selling, and we keep refining the approach. Mm. By the way, we do the same with colleagues. We have a colleague value proposition that right. is designed to be distinctive and differentiated and attract talent. On that note, Steve, when um, when we were having dinner, you told me of this, I don't even know how to articulate it because I think I nearly spilt my soup. Um, but basically, any staff member that comes and works for you, come in and out when they want, as much holiday as they want, and pretty much a carte blanche approach to benefits, etc. Can you talk about that? Is that something you still do? Because I went back to my board and we threw this on the table and hotly debated this. Mm. Yeah, uh, you remember well, it, we, we call it a contract of trust. And we designed it um, in 2019. So it was a part of our launch. So this was before the, the pandemic and it obviously served us well. And effectively, we basically have a contract that has no defined working hours, that has um, unlimited holiday um, or holiday at your discretion, but you must take a minimum of two, two or four weeks, I think. And then um, maternity leave, 12 months fully paid, paternity leave, six months fully paid, carers leave. And we designed a, um, a value proposition for colleagues that it actually got profiled in the Financial Times, in fact, in uh, 2019, that we felt would enable us to attract a diverse cross-section of high-quality talent who would respect the fact that it is a contract of trust and it's a two-way contract. So we want to make sure we get the best performance out of uh, individuals and in return, we're giving them an incredible, flexible way of working and a flexible benefit package. Now, three years on or three and a half years on, not only are we convinced that that was an unbelievably smart decision, but we're looking at how we are going to continue to modify that contract of trust to make it even more compelling. And um, when I see the... Um, colleagues coming and talking to me about paternity leave and how they were able to spend uh, time away, um, you know, looking after their, um, you know, their firstborn um, son or daughter. And, um, and they knew it was 
at a unique moment in time and they didn't have the pressure uh, either financial or from a work standpoint of having to come into into work it it to my mind has really helped um, create loyalty to uh, the firm and what we're doing and it's made these people um, even more effective in uh, you know the way they think about the company and the way they think about um, you know working at the firm and, and the contribution they make so when I went back and discussed this with my fellow board members and um, one of our challenges we felt was that with back then 120 staff like I, I imagine if we wrote the script again and started from scratch you could start with that and you could quite acquire the new ch talent probably on the cheap without the recruitment fees is it something you can do in an existing organization that's been going 15 years that isn't a blank slate why not uh, i mean i say that flippantly but you know this is a this is a world where people talk a lot about disruption and and we certainly you know and you talk about it's the name of the show <laughs> exactly you talk about disruption and you can be a bit of a disruptor as a startup and we like to think that in our own way we're being um, thoughtfully disruptive but you can also be an existing company where you say you know what to get to a better place I need to be uh, disrupt my own model because you know it's only going to get me so far but actually if I thought differently about this yes there's there's a risk but the upside may well be significant so I wouldn't close anything off I mean I think if it's an existing business you've got you've also got the opportunity to survey your existing um, staff mm. get views and perspectives and, and actually you can you can have them help build a new colleague value proposition for your own firm it might have different um, different aspects to it mm. yeah mm. That one's not going away in my mind. It keeps peckering away at me. Right, so we will finish. There's a couple of more in-depth ones, but we'll finish on super quick fire round. So this is like 15 seconds. We find they get good answers. <laughs> I'm sure you've got other appointments today. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken, Steve? Starting a new business. What's the biggest success in your life? Marrying my wife, Liz. What's the best advice you ever remember receiving? Be a good listener. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? Can't think of worst advice. I might come back to that. Well, being a good listener was the last one. <laughs> what would you say is your biggest failure, Steve? Probably managing my time between being an entrepreneur and a business leader and trying to balance it with your personal life. What's your biggest regret? Um, one of my biggest regrets is 
um, my father and mother, who both passed away. My father was a proud military man. Um, my mother used to work for the head of the SAS, and um, they weren't around to see me go to Buckingham Palace and get my CBE. One of my regrets. Would you rather have one million pounds cash or one million engaged social media followers and why? One million pounds cash because I don't have a great interest in social media. At my stage of my life, it's not the most important thing. And it would enable me to continue to do what I want, which is um, yeah, looking after my family and friends and giving back to communities and charities. Is Bill Gates a net positive or a net negative to humanity? Well, I would say he's an, my personal view is he, he's a net positive. I think anybody that has made a decision to give away 99%, if that's the right percentage of their own wealth, um, to try and create a better environment and to give back, I think is a great example to everybody, um, especially those people who are wealthy enough to be able to be more balanced in um, the way they think about their wealth and what they can do to it. The Queen passed away recently and thinking about her legacy and right now in the media there's all this noise with Prince Harry. What do you think of all the stuff with Prince Harry? Luckily it's a 15 second answer <laughs> but I'd, I would be extremely disappointed if my son had behaved and done what Prince Harry has done is all I'd say. Um, I'm, I'm proud of my son, I'm proud of my daughters and um, I, I think there are things that you keep within the four walls of family and there are things that can be more public and, uh, and I think my son and daughters know the rights and the wrongs and you know and we're a very close-knit unfortunately a very close-knit family what would you say is your legacy i i would like to think that building mcgillan partners uh it can continue as a really strong and successful business and that i and some of my other senior leaders uh partner john lloyd who's chairman who's few years older than me, we look forward to handing the business over to the next generation of, of leaders. And I hope that McGillan Partners will continue to just, you know, for decades in the future, grow from strength to strength and, and be a firm that everybody's proud to be a part of, that, that actually thinks about talent in, in a considerate caring way that thinks about giving back in 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 the right way thinks about serving clients in the right way that operates to the highest standards of integrity and professionalism and you know i i think if 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 we can achieve that i think it's going to be a shining example for businesses in financial services and certainly within the insurance industry as to what you can do and what you can achieve and
and how you can actually build a legacy that is everlasting. So there's two questions I save to the end, selfishly. Um, how do you hire great talent? Do the research, do the analysis, um, have a colleague value proposition that is, is compelling and the business that is compelling, and then um, you know, go through a process of due diligence on, on the talent that, uh, that enables you to filter the talent so that you hopefully get the great talent that you referenced. How do you raise money? Sounds like you've done that a lot, charitable and um, for your startup, which is massive now. How do you raise money? Well, I think again, you've you've got to have a an approach. You've got to have a determination. And I, I mentioned earlier when we were, my wife Liz and I, working on the um, Sir Bobby Charlton charity right at the start. Yeah, we said we will hit a million pounds by the time we have dinner six months later we were not going to miss the million pounds. So you, you have a goal, you have a determination, you have a focus, and you're relentless in um, you know, your approach to success. How do you handle rejection? Do you feel that? Does that bother you? Um, no, it, it doesn't bother me, and it's expected. And when I think about setting up uh, McGillan Partners, it was interesting that when we were looking at raising money, we had financial sponsors who, who would basically say, I'll give you $5 billion and I want you to go and buy a whole load of existing companies and bang them together and strip out the cost. And yet they wouldn't entertain giving you $250 million to start a brand new business. So, um, you know, my view was um, if they didn't actually get it, they would be the wrong partner anyway. And I didn't feel, it didn't bother me that there was in a way a rejection to, um, to, to the approach on the business plan because Starting a business, as you, as you would know, as an entrepreneur, is a higher risk, but it's a higher reward. Mm. And some financial sponsors get it, and some some don't. Mm. So this show is called Disruptors, and we always end with the same question. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Disruptive, to, to me, in the context of, of our industry, is, is actually making change and doing it rapidly with high impact to get to to get us into a better place and into a better place for either our clients preferably and also our colleagues because if you've got an enlightened workforce that is highly motivated it's amazing what they can do and if you've if you've got a disruptive value proposition that resonates with clients, you know, the sky's the limit. So, you know, that's that's my view. I think it's rapidly evolving in the in the case of our industry, an industry that's been three hundred years old, that's done things the same way 
for decades and decades and um, I'm just putting a disruptive element into into the, the mix can pay serious dividends and, and is for us as a firm. So Steve, entrepreneurs have a lot to do and they're scarce of time and I know you're very busy so I just want to say thank you very much for taking the amount of time that you have um, to be on the show today. Pleasure. Thank you very no, much. No, thanks. Appreciate it.